Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brothers sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be paid. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, 
Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Take your Bibles, if you would, then, please, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, not 18, Matthew chapter 16. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've just gotten a new job. It's your first day on the new job. You have no idea what you're supposed to do because nobody's told you anything. So you're in the middle of this building, you're just standing there, somebody yells at you, hey, go get the defabulator from the perpendicular. And you're like, what? And you're still kind of standing there and somebody else walks by and says, stop staring at that machine on the wall, you're going to go blind. You're like, all right. And then finally your boss comes around and he walks up to you and he says, what are you doing? You haven't, you haven't swept the floors yet? And he hands you a ladder. And you're standing there going, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what to do. Nobody has told me. You, my friend, need a job description. And we have already seen what the local church is. The local church is a group of saved people who identify with one another and seek to glorify God by regularly gathering together to worship and proclaim his word to affirm one another's profession of faith by the right practice of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and to display to the world his gospel by their authentic love for one another. And within that definition of a local church are hints at the job description of each member of that local church. There is no silver bullet verse to teach church membership. If you're waiting for that verse, you will be waiting until glory. It is not there. Membership, the way we're speaking of it, is a theological term, not dissimilar to the theological term trinity. You will not find the word trinity in your Bible but you will find the doctrine, the teaching of Trinity in your Bible. In like manner, you will not find the phrase local church membership in your Bible, but you will find the teaching or the doctrine of local church membership there. So when we do theology like this, we are taking what the Bible teaches on a certain matter and we're giving it a label, a phrase, a word to summarize it. We have been building out our theology of the church. That's what this entire series is about. 
But I want to remind you of something I said in my very first sermon in this series. I requested that you would stay patient. Because kids, this series is a little bit like building a tower with Lego. And if you have built a tower with Lego that has, say, four sides, you will know that if you build up just one side, that tower will begin to tip and fall. You've got to build this side and then go over here and build a little bit of that side and then go back to this side. It has to be a little bit of back and forth to build a good tower. And in like fashion, that's what I'm trying to do in this series. Today I'm going to look at the job description of every member. And I'm going to assume, all right, here's my assumption. I'm telling you my assumption. My assumption is that the Bible teaches you should be the member of a local church. I'm not out to prove that to you. I'm assuming that. And today, when I look at the job description of every member, I'm I'm starting here with job description because I think once you see the job description, you'll begin to realize that you cannot possibly fulfill that job description unless you are the member of a local church. So what I'm going to do is lay out the commands from Jesus of things every Christian is required to do, but I don't think you can actually do them unless you have some form of recognized membership in a local church. I want to delay there for a moment. Let that sit for a moment. I'm telling you, I'm going to show you things in the Bible that I don't think you can do unless you're the member of a local church. It doesn't have to be membership the way in the form that we practice it. I'm just saying some form of recognizable membership in a local church. You cannot do these things unless that is so, which means, my friend, there are potentially things in the Bible that God has told you to do that you are disobeying if you're not a member of a local church. You see what I mean? If God says you need to do this and the only way to do it is in a local church, then you must join a local church in order to fulfill what God has commanded. As As one of the people that God has saved, he's given you things to do that can only be done in the ecclesia, in the gathering of his people. So unless you're providentially hindered somehow from joining the membership of an ecclesia, of a church, of a gathering, in whatever form that gathering practices membership, you're either sinning against God by failing to obey some of his commands or you're right on the edge of sinning against God. So my premise is that seeing the job description will help convince you that local churches must practice membership in some way and that you need to be a member of a local church wherever possible. Not necessarily this one. I am not a recruiter for Grace Fellowship Church. I'm a recruiter for Jesus Church. I want you to be gathered and identified with other Christians because I so clearly convinced the Bible teaches this. So here comes the job description for a member of a local church, which means if you're a member of this local church, this is what you are responsible to do. And if you're a member and visiting with us today, you're a member of another local church, this is what you're responsible to do in your ecclesia, in your assembly, in your church. 
Now let me just set the table a little bit by reminding us of a few things we've already seen. The word church, ecclesia, gathering, it means a gathering of people. In an ultimate and, uh, yeah, in an ultimate sense, God's ecclesia, God's gathering of people, is all of God's saved people. We know that because Ephesians 5.25, for example, Christ loved the what? The church. So big universal church, all God's people. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We also know that these saved people intentionally join with local physical gatherings of other saved people. So John, for instance, in the Revelation would write to the seven churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. The local church is a group of saved people in one location. And you intentionally identify with the other Christians around you. And as we said in our definition, the local church gathers to do certain things, to worship God, to proclaim his word, affirm one another's profession of faith through the ordinances, and to display to the world that gospel that we believe by our authentic love for each other. All of this, if you're thinking about this, all of this implies a certain order to the Christian life. Conversion, baptism, membership, the Lord's Supper, removal either by death, dismissal, or transfer. And that's basically how this series is proceeding. We started with conversion, thief on the cross, and, and then we've argued that you, you can't be in a local church unless you're part of the universal church, so you need to be saved. You're part of the universal church the moment God saves you, but very soon after this, you need to be baptized, make your profession of faith before the church, and that profession is to be accepted by the local church, and of course, that's to take place at baptism. When you join the church, and we spent two weeks looking at baptism, we're actually going to circle back a little bit to baptism in a few weeks' time, but now I want to pivot and talk about membership. So this is the building of the Lego Tower. We've, we've done some work on baptism. Now let's go over here to membership. One concern that some people have expressed to me, uh, in, especially in regards to keeping baptism closely connected with church membership, is that somehow that's going to hold people back from getting baptized because the thought of becoming a member is kind of overwhelming to them. It's going to make them hesitate. It's going to make them not want to get baptized. That, that joining Membership to baptism is actually in some ways making it harder to be a Christian, almost like you're adding something to the gospel. And I really, I could not disagree with that more. In fact, I think the opposite is actually true. Holding membership off until something later, in essence, causes membership to function like a kind of higher tier, a higher level of Christian discipleship. And in that sense, it becomes something like an addition to the gospel. Well, the really mature people become members of a church. But that's so far from reality. In fact, we would argue that if a person is not ready to become a member of the church, they're not ready to be baptized. Let me repeat that. If you're not ready to become a member of the church, you're not ready to be baptized. Conversion is not merely you coming to Jesus it's you coming to Jesus and becoming a part of his people. 
So if you refuse to join with his people, you're really in essence rejecting him because he says, this is my bride, like this, th- these are my people. And it calls into question then your willingness to follow him, to do things that might appear hard or difficult. Jesus said, count the cost. The fact of the matter is that having folks join as members as their brand new believers baptized is actually the most loving thing that the rest of us could do for them. Let me illustrate this for you from the animal kingdom. I don't know if you, well, let me ask a question. What, what animal, what, which part of the herd do predators attack? Do they go for the strongest, the fittest, the biggest? No, of course not. Who do they go for? They attack the weak, the young, the stragglers, the newborns. That's easy prey. Friends, Satan is far more evil than a lioness. And he will do all that he can do to destroy anyone who professes faith in Jesus. So I ask you, where is the safest place for that new Christian to be? in the herd, with God's people, in the church. I don't know, kids, if you've ever seen water buffalo. They're the the buffalo on the African continent. Water buffalo are huge. They can be 12 feet from stem to stern, and they can weigh about 2,200 pounds. They are massive. And when their little baby water buffalo are is it buffalo or buffaloes? I don't know. But when the little baby buffaloes are, are threatened, mama buffaloes put them all into a little circle, and then they all get a, like a little ring around them. And then the daddy buffaloes get around the mama buffaloes, and they look at a whole pride of lion, and they go, yeah, bring it on. And those water buffalo will keep their babies safe from a, from. 15 lions. The lions are coming and trying. They're swiping and they're biting and they're da 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 da. And if they get past daddy buffalo, well, then they got to deal with mama buffalo. And you don't want to touch mama buffalo if she's protecting her young. And in large measure, that's what the church is to be. You're a new Christian, we put you in the middle. You let the old Christians go on the outskirts. They've, they've learned a few things, they've taken their knocks, they've got some scars from previous battles, but they'll keep you safe. I don't think there is ever a reason to delay becoming a member of a church. You need, friend, you need the protection of the herd. I need the protection of the herd. We all need it. You need the accountability in your life. You need the authority of the church in your life. Other Christians need you in their lives. And the best place for a brand new believer to be is in the middle of the circle. All the mature Christians surrounding him, maybe absorbing some of his youngling folly stuff because he's a new Christian. He doesn't know everything. And we'll, just, we'll sort of like, yeah, okay, that's fine. But we're going to beat back the enemy and we're going to keep you safe. So all of that and on to the job description. What are you doing then as a member? Well, you can summarize your job description with a what and a who. We'll keep talking about a what and a who. And we'll look at three passages in Matthew's gospel. The good confession, Matthew 16, the bad profession. By profession here, I don't mean a job. I mean uh, you profess something. So an inconsistent profession, Matthew 18. And then the great commission in Matthew 28. Slightly significant point, 
slightly smaller one, and then a really short one at the end so you don't panic. Number one, the good confession. So here's the first part of your job description if you're the member of a local church. Make sure the church preaches the gospel and only admits into its membership the saved. All right? Matthew 16, we'll begin in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of uh, Caesarea Philippi, which is not Jewish land, it's not part of Israel, it's full of pagan idols, which is an interesting setting for this discussion, he finally looks to his disciples and asks the identity question. Matthew 16, 13. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is a title. Jesus uses it often to refer to himself in Matthew's gospel. It's rooted in the Old Testament. It's a little bit like asking, who do people say Pastor Paul is? Not just Paul Martin, but they're attaching a title to a name. So within the question Jesus is asking, he's given a designator. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, last of the Old Testament prophets. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So the 12 indicate to Jesus that among the average people of Israel, they are identifying him as a resurrected prophet or perhaps something like Elisha to an Elijah picking up the mantle of the previous prophet. Jesus listens to their answer, and then comes the killer question, verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Okay, that's what they say. What do you say? I wonder if there was a bit of silence there. I don't know, but Simon Peter speaks up. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, if you've been reading Matthew's gospel from Matthew chapter 1 to here, you have been waiting for this moment. No one has dared to say it yet. And Peter has, this is the mic drop moment in Matthew's gospel. That's why Jesus says in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. You call me the Son of of God, the son of the living God. I call you son of Jonah. Bar is a Hebrew word. It means son of. It's, a, it's kind of like your last name. You're, you're Peter, son of Jonah. You're Simon Bar Jonah. These are statements of origin. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you're from Jonah. I am from God. You have identified rightly my divine nature and you have also spotted my divine role as the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ, again, is a title, not a name. It's not Jesus' name. It's a title. It's a designator. It means the anointed one. Old Testament word is Messiah. It's an office. And this Messiah was the object of Israel's hope. They knew from the Old Testament prophecies that Messiah would come and Messiah would save them. Now, there was a lot of confusion about that, about the nature and the extent of that salvation. Many thought it was political or merely ethnic, but maybe something like the judges of old or the kings of old. But Peter's on to something here because he, he notes that the anointed one was the son of the living God, the son of the God who is alive. 
What Peter has done here is Peter has crafted a good confession, a statement of belief. He looks to Jesus. He says, you are God in the flesh who has come to save us. And Jesus continues his affirmation of Peter's good confession by noting that Peter didn't come up with it. It had a supernatural origin. For flesh and blood, says Jesus, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's like Jesus looks to Peter and says, you didn't get this from your father. You got it from my father. In other words, God, the Father, revealed to Peter the true identity of Jesus. It's always that way, by the way. Uh, Nobody reasons their way to God. No one comes to an accurate understanding of God as Savior until God reveals this to them by his Holy Spirit. And Jesus affirms this when he tells Peter, my father revealed this to you, not your dad. All right. Now we descend into the weeds a little bit. For we reach that verse in this part of the narrative where everything from popes to episcopacies have been taught. Verse 18. And I tell you... You are Peter, and on this rock, all right, remember that, this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This rock. One line of interpretation says, this rock refers to the good confession that Peter just made. Jesus is Messiah. And this will serve then as the foundation to the gathering of my people, my church. I will build my church, says Jesus. That interpretation was very popular in the days of the Reformation because of an abuse of the text in a second interpretation that was meant to defend the papacy, the the, the role of a pope. So the second interpretation says, this rock, in that statement, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. They would say, well, Jesus builds his church on Petros the Petra. It's a play on words, on Peter the rock, on Petros the Petra. And from this developed a whole theology called apostolic succession, which suggests every papa, every pope, is a descendant of Peter, not a physical descendant, because after all, priests don't marry. They shouldn't have kids, but historically, you might look into that. Anyway, uh, and then uh, every descendant that takes on the office of Pope, once they take on that office, they are taking on the mantle of Peter. It's Peter's chair, it's called. So this, are, this is a verse that was used to defend the papacy. This text has nothing to do with popes. Can we just say that? And if that's still a question for you, email me this week. I can point you to some good resources. But it's not my purpose to to deal with that in this sermon. I'm trying to help us get to an understanding of what it means to be a member of the church. Because the church is what Jesus is talking about here. After all, whatever the rock is, it's the thing or the things that are going to build the church and help it attack the creaky gates of hell. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think this is an often misunderstood image. People, we we tend to think that 
gates are an offensive weapon, like hell is trying to take us over. Gates are a defensive weapon. So the church is on the offensive, not the defensive. Gates do not advance. (laughs) Gates are meant to protect. Hell has gates that will not withstand the advance of the church. Now, most modern commentators agree that the plainest reading of this verse is that the phrase, this rock, it does refer to Peter. But it refers to Peter in this context as the representative or the first person who's made the good confession. Jesus seems to be saying that he intends to build his church on people who make the good confession, people who get saved. They confess Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one, the Son of God. He's my Savior. And hell gives up another soul. The creaky gates don't hold. They do not prevail. Now, for our purposes, it's really useful to pause here for a moment and note that if this is correct... Jesus is building his ecclesia, his gathering, his church with a what and a who. What is the truth about Jesus, the good confession? Who believes this truth about Jesus, the good confessors? That makes sense out of what follows. Because Jesus says that he's going to give Peter, as the rock, a set of keys. (laughs) Another metaphor. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. There was a reason for that in that context. don't have time to tell you why. But Christ is a monarchical term, right? Jesus is king. But he is the king that is planning on leaving, and he'll come back again. But when he leaves, he entrusts keys to, in the first place here, Peter. We'll see in a moment, the church, the entire ecclesia. What do those keys do? We're getting to the heart of it. (laughs) Notice they do not lock and unlock. They do not open and close. Jesus uses very precise language here of bind and loose. Here are the keys. These are the keys that bind and loose. To bind something means to tie it fast. You might take a a sheaf of wheat and you would bind it together. Or your donkey. You take your donkey and he has reins and you tie the reins to a post. You bind them to the post. That's what it means to bind. Do you know what loose means? Untie the donkey or untie the sheaf. So binding and loosing. You see these two words used in the same verse when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He calls to the dead man, come out. John 11, 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound, same word, with linen strips. So you would, you would tie them almost sort of mummy-like, bound with linen, linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said unbind, which is actually the exact same word loose. It just kind of is weird in English to say loose him. So it's translated unbind him, loose him, and let him go. Bind, loose. What on earth is Jesus talking about here? <laughs> the, the, the keys of the kingdom of heaven 
are to be used by humans like Peter to bind and to loose. The ecclesia as a whole, in other words, is going to be representing the authority of heaven on earth. To use the keys, in essence, is to render judgments on the what of the gospel and the who of the gospel. You're looking for a good confession and a good confessor. Kind of like a judge. A judge does not write the laws, but he evaluates the words and the actions of you in comparison to the laws. So a local church, after the evidence is presented, like a judge, would say, yes, that is a good gospel confession. And yes, you have a life that is living in line with the truth of God's word, exercising the keys using the keys. Or the church might say, no, that's not a good gospel confession. Or no, this is not a life that is living in light of the scriptures. Just like that judge makes judgments on a who and a what, the local church does the same. In fact, if you think about it, Jesus is using the keys right now in front of the disciples. He is making decisions on a right confession and a right confessor. In this case, what Peter said and who Peter is. And that seems to mean a lot like what we said earlier. Jesus is building his gatherings with a what and a who. What is the truth about him? The good confession. Who believes this truth about him? The good confessors. And it is up, all right, job description time, it is up to his representatives on earth, right now Peter, but we'll see in a second in chapter 18, it's the church clearly. It's up to the church to make judgments on these matters, to either bind or loose. So you come to us, say, I'd like to be a member. We ask you, what do you confess about Christ? What do you understand the gospel to be? And then we ask you, does, do you live a life of growing obedience to Christ? Do you live in line with the confession that you're making? If you have a good confession and you live like a Christian, we bind you to us. Or if your confession is wrong or your life does not line up with it, then we shall set you loose from us. You cannot be one of us. Now, there's more here, but let's jump ahead to Matthew 18, second part of the job description. The only other place in Matthew's gospel where the word ecclesia, church, is used. And here we say the bad profession or the inconsistent profession. What's your job description? Make sure the church preaches the gospel and removes those whose lives do not match the gospel. Now, in the context of this chapter, uh, the whole thing is about what to do when people who are saying they are Christians are sinning. How is the church, how is the ecclesia supposed to react to the sins of her members? Because nobody's saying, by the way, that when you become a Christian, you stop sinning. We're all trying to, but none of us will till the day of glory. Now, we've looked at this passage many times in the history of our church, so I'll go kind of rapidly through here, but look at Matthew 18, verse 15. Verse 15, 
If your brother sins against you, by the way, this is not just for men, males, it's for females too. Brother is an inclusive term for females as well. So if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Let's pause there for a moment. So you've got a brother in the church who sins against you, does not come to you and say, please forgive me for the ways I've sinned against you. So you go to that brother in private, just you and him alone, Jesus says, and you make known to him his offense. If he listens, which means that he owns his sins, he repents from his sins, he asks you to forgive him, then the matter is over. If he continues in his sins or refuses to make matters right with you, then you are under a moral obligation to avoid him and gossip about him to everyone else. Mm-mm. You are under a moral obligation from God to get one or two other Christians, other members, and go to that brother and make the same appeal again. Please, brother, repent. Please make things right. And the reason that you take two or three of you is so that the case is fair. Because if he refuses to make things right, you're going to need those witnesses in the next step, which is in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the ecclesia, the church, the gathering, the local gathering of God's people. So you've gone once, no response. You've gone twice, time for response, no response. Now you tell the matter to the gathering, the ecclesia, the church, the local church. Why? So that all the members of the church can continue to plead with this person to repent from their sins. And if he's not listening to the three of you, maybe he will listen to the entire church. But verse 17 again, and or but if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. In other words, the final step is to remove, it is to loose that person from the membership by informing them this ecclesia, this gathering of Christians can no longer affirm your what and your who. You might still be saying a good confession, but you're not living in line with that confession because you're refusing to obey King Jesus, the one that you say you're confessing. Your unrepentant sin is the behavior of a person who's not a Christian. And thus, this church removes you from our membership. We loose you because you are living out of line with the gospel. Essentially, it means we look at another human being and we say, we can no longer affirm you're a Christian, and that means you're no longer welcome at the Lord's table. Ex-communion, ex-communicate, communion, Lord's Supper. What you're doing in church discipline is you're saying to a person, you're no longer welcome at this table because this is for God's people. That is a remarkably serious and weighty thing, and never to be done willy-nilly or lightheartedly. 
That is why, by the way, Jesus follows up this command to excommunicate with this very strong encouragement for the church. Look at what he says in verse 18. This is all the same context, same speech, same moment. <laughs> Truly I say to you, um, I, this is, I'm going to help you see the plurals here. So I'm going to say y'all, like I'm a southerner, um, for, for like when it's, when it's plural. Truly I say to y'all, whatever y'all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to y'all, if two of you all agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. What words did you spot there? We got binding and loosing again. Only this time, it's Jesus speaking not just to Peter, but to the entire church, all those who have made good confession. When the church acts to bind a person to them, they are bringing them into the membership of the ecclesia. When the church acts to loose a person from them, they are moving that person out of the membership of the ecclesia. A person might be removed because they change their what, or they might be removed because they don't live their who. Let me make a few observations. Number one is this. This is an action of the church as a whole. Tell it to the church and all the plurals that follow. It is not something that you as a member of the church can do to another member of the church. I can't walk up to Patrick and go, I loose you. I don't have that authority. Neither do you. Jesus speaks here, second thing, of uh, two or three members of the church acting in unison. That means, to my mind, that a church can form as soon as there are two Christians bound together. But that church, that ecclesia, cannot act in discipline until there are at least three members because you have to have at least two witnesses to the one person's offense. Number three, when the two or three, or 198 for that matter, act like this to loose a person from the membership, Jesus is with them. I have heard verse 20 quoted at prayer meetings as if to imply Jesus is more present or listening more closely or more obligated to do what we're praying once there's at least two or three of us in the room. In fact, I've heard that four times this week. So I'm just going to apologize to the people I'm about to offend uh, because I plan to say this long before you did it. However, as much as I love you, I think you're missing the point. This verse has nothing to do with prayer meetings. It doesn't have anything to do with your small group. It doesn't have anything to do with your Bible study. Zilch. It is speaking, Jesus speaking a word of encouragement to the ecclesia when they are formally removing, loosing a member due to their unrepentant sin. That's all this is talking about. Jesus has already affirmed that if they have followed this process and the person has not repented, they are rightly acting with the authority of heaven. 
And now he comes back to this at the end of his little speech here and he reassures the ecclesia, I am with you in this. As hard and as difficult as it is, if you've been a part of this sad process, my friends, you know how much these words mean. It also means that, God forbid, if you are ever under church discipline, you ought to take it very, very seriously. So the the church, the ecclesia, has been given a set of keys. And with these keys, they adjudicate, they judge the what of the gospel, the who of the gospel. Matthew chapter 16, does this person make a good confession of King Jesus? Matthew chapter 18, does this person live consistently as a follower of King Jesus? And that leads us to Matthew chapter 28, third part of the job description found in the Great Commission, Make sure the church preaches the gospel and teaches the saved to live it. So in Matthew 28, we do not read the word church. It's not there. But we see lots of the other vocabulary that we've seen in the two passages that do include it. Plus, the entire premise of the Great Commission is to build the church. This is how you'll build the church. So Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here again, Jesus emphasizes his authority, his sharing of that authority with his church. He says, I will be with them as you take the good confession out into the world. In order to make disciples, I'm going to be with you. People will hear that good confession. They'll hear the good news. Then they'll get baptized, which means in part being made a part of the ecclesia. And then they will be taught to do what King Jesus commands, teach them to observe, to do, to obey all that I have commanded you. So not only do these new disciples of Jesus have to make a good gospel confession, the what, they need to start living their lives under the commands of Jesus as they've been revealed in the Bible, a who. So when you combine these three texts, you begin to get the first big parts of the job description of every church member. So if you're a member of Grace Fellowship Church, I'm talking to you. What does that mean? What are you supposed to do as a member of the church? It can be answered with a what and a who. First of all, guard the what. Make sure that the good confession is taught here. Make sure the gospel is taught here and that the people who become members of this church hold that good confession and believe it. Secondly, guard the who. Make sure you bring into membership only true believers and remove from membership those whose lives are consistently inconsistent with the Bible which means a church member operates in a realm of authority in that job description. Let's just take, for example, the what. Every member of this church has a responsibility to ensure that this church preaches the gospel. 
Every member of the church, not just the elders of the church, every member of the church has a responsibility to make sure that this church preaches the gospel. I don't think that means every member is to become an armchair critic. I'll speak later on the relationship of elders to members. Congregationalism, by the way, is not the same thing as democracy. But for now, you need to see one of your big responsibilities as a member of this church is making sure that the gospel is taught here. For those of us that have been here for a long time, we're now standing in what used to be the parking lot. And the building used to end back there a little bit. And I recall one Sunday night trying to preach and teach when some fine young men from the neighborhood came to play basketball. And it was somebody's idea to put the basketball hoop essentially where that one is right there, which was extremely close to the window in which we were meeting. And we were in that lower gym, which meant every bounce of the ball resonated with a thump, 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 ding, thump, 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 ding. And on and on it went. And I recall preaching and thinking, is anybody going to do anything to stop them? <laughs> Friends, if you're here and someone stands here, even me, who's thumping out some false gospel, do something. If somebody stands up here and says, Jesus is one of many ways to get to heaven. Or if they say, you don't have to be godly, you're already saved. Or if they teach, God's word is very good advice, but it's not authoritative. I don't care who it is, but the members of this church ought to stand up and say, sit down, sir. Somebody's got to do it. Paul was writing to the Galatian church, not the elders. Check it out in the introduction to the letter to the Galatians. He wrote to the church, and he said to the church, even if we, meaning me, the apostle Paul, and other apostles, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to y'all a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you all a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In fact, Paul and Peter were in Galatia at the same time, and Peter was slipping towards this error, and Paul stood up and confronted him in front of everybody. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. You say, why would you do that, Paul? You're just some kind of upright theological crank? No, because Peter, by his actions in this case, was adding to the gospel. And whether a person adds to or takes away from that good confession, it cannot be tolerated in the church. Let me speak to men, young adults. I'm speaking to young adult men, okay? Got your attention? Because I'm speaking to you. Do you know the gospel well enough that when old guys like me pass on to glory, you will be able to defend it? Or are you like one of those guys who, who likes to hold your little fringe views or get drawn away to the latest fad or the famous preacher? If that's you, please never ask to be an elder here. We want men who are set to guard the good deposit once delivered to the saints. We want 
about men who are boring, who simply say, I'm going to carry on what all the faithful elders before me were doing. I'm just going to keep that going on. We want men who will call out a co-elder if that co-elder loses his way because the apostle warned us, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Young adult brothers, study that Bible. Read that Bible. Know that Bible. Grow in your understanding of God and his ways. I have spent nearly 35 years of my life doing that, and I barely know anything. And I may not live another five years. Who knows? Are you going to take my place? What do you need to do to become our next elder? You think we got too many elders? Oh, no. What sins do you just need to stop? Don't bore me with your false humility. I am not worthy. I am not worthy. Look, friend, brother, life is short. People are going to hell, and the church is God's solution. Are you going to do your part to keep her healthy and strong in this city? Every member needs to guard the what of the gospel. And every member needs to guard the who of the gospel. Members of Grace Fellowship Church, this is your most frequent ministry. Let me ask you, what will happen to this church if a bunch of unbelievers become members? I'll tell you what happened. I've seen it happen many times. Slowly our focus will shift away from the gospel. Slowly we'll close our Bibles and talk about other things. We will confuse people about Jesus will create a bunch of hypocrites, many of whom are going to think they're going to heaven when in reality they're bound to hell. So when you apply to become a member here, we don't have like 800 questions. We ask you, what's the gospel? Can you please tell us the gospel as you understand it? You don't have to be articulate. You don't have to be great. You don't have to quote Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> but we need to know you know it. And then we ask you, is there evidence of God's grace in your life? Are you growing as a Christian? First bit of evidence would be your baptism. Second bit of evidence would be your obedience. Not perfect, but progressing. In other words, we examine your what and your who. Do you profess the same gospel that the Bible teaches? Do you live a life of growing alignment to the good commands of Jesus? Now, the elders of this church lead that process. We meet with a prospective member. We interview them. We help them along. And then we send you their testimonies. Why do we do that? Because you've got keys and you're to use them. It's for you as a member of this church to examine the what and the who of a prospective member. Does this person understand and agree with the what of the gospel? Does this person live a life of growing obedience to King Jesus? You may read a person's testimony and think, you know what, I'm not so sure. I have questions. What are you supposed to do then? Ask them. <laughs> As one human being, you can approach another human being and say, well, I'm so happy that you applied for membership. And man, I just, could, could you just tell me how the Lord saved you? Give them an opportunity to speak about the gospel. And then at our next members meeting, you will vote. Why do you vote your affirmation of every single new member? 
think the last members meeting we brought in 16 members or something like that and one, vote, 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 every single one by one. Why? Because adding new members is an action of the church, not the elders. We all decide. We all say, this woman confesses the same gospel, is living a life in line with that gospel, and we all agree to then bind her to us. Which means, my dear fellow members, if you're skipping reading the testimonies, you cannot possibly fulfill what the Lord has called you to do. Got two weeks. Seems like lots of time to read a few testimonies. Membership in the church is not the same thing as membership at Costco. (laughs) You just decide, I want to be a member, you pay your money, and then you decide, I don't want to pay the money, it's not that good anyway. Uh, So you you don't pay your money anymore. That's, That's not membership in the church. The members of this church are called to bring you in, to to bind you. And should you have reasons to leave, they're called to send you out. God forbid, but if you end up in unrepentant sin, they're also called to loose you from the church as a dire warning that you may not really be a Christian. Fellow members, I think that should leave you with a big encouragement and a very heavy obligation. I'll tell you the encouragement first. If you're doubting your salvation, you don't have assurance of your own salvation, you should take encouragement in the fact that a bunch of other Christians have objectively looked at your what and your who, and they say, yeah, we really think you're a Christian. Your heart is deceitful above all else, which means your self-evaluation is almost always wrong. Whenever you self-evaluate, just think, I was probably wrong, (laughs) and ask another human being. Satan is the author of doubt. But God has given you some objective eyes to look at your life and say, brother, I think you're truly a brother. Let me pray for you now that you would grow in your assurance of your salvation. We ought to have way more confidence in the evaluation of a bunch of people we're living our lives alongside with than our own subjective feelings, especially if we're the, some of us by makeup just have feelings that like, like we're all over the map. And if that's you, I say just lean into your membership and trust what others see. But then there's the obligation. Think for a moment about what you owe those who are coming into the membership of this church. They're going to be bound to you in a very unique way. Think of what they're promising in the covenant that we take with one another, much of which encapsulates the content of this sermon. And I would say to you, re-up your commitment to be at member meetings, five of, the, five of them in a year, every year, same five meetings. Be at the meeting, read those testimonies, vote with knowledge and prayer because you're doing a spiritual thing. That's your job as a Christian, to evaluate the who and the what. And if we're doing that stuff kind of willy-nilly, not really thinking about it, not reading testimonies, not praying about it, not getting to know people, mm, I don't think Jesus is going to be with us the way we want him to be with us. There are few things worse as an employee than getting hired to do a job, but not being given any instruction on what you're supposed to do. Friends, there are few things worse as an employer 
than giving your employee a detailed job description only to find them doing something else or not doing anything at all. Let's pray. Father, help us as a church to grow in our love for what you've given us, to renew our zeal to be the best kind of church members we can be, all for the glory of your great name. Amen.